This is a Stimulus Network podcast. The Cosmic Shed. Hello and welcome to the Cosmic Shed. I'm Andrew and with me today are... Steve. And... Hi. And I'm delighted to say that we're joined by the author of The Martian, the author of Artemis, now the author of Project Hail Mary, and most importantly, friend of the Cosmic Shed, it is of course Andy Weir. Can I just say thanks for writing Hail Mary, it is brilliant. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you liked it. I love it so much. It's made me very, very happy. And, um, and so is everybody else who's, who's read it that I know. Did your face leak? <laughs> of course. Of course. I've been calling Steve Rocky ever since. And uh, that's, that's kind of how I go. I'm taking that as a, a huge compliment in, in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Have you been keeping up with things like Ingenuity on Mars? Oh, of course I have. I mean, I'm a dork. What would you expect? I think it's fantastic. It's just so cool. We have a little thing flying around. And if you'd asked me like, you know, five years ago, hey, do you think we should make a little flying helicopter for Mars? I'd say, no, you're an idiot. That's <laughs> like Mars's atmosphere is like less than 1% of Earth. So those blades would have to be going absurdly fast. No one would put that much effort into mate anyway. So um, <laughs> here we are with a functional helicopter on Mars, which is really amazing. If you're going back to Mars as, a, as an author, do you use that helicopter? Well, I mean, I don't think I'd write another, you know, hard sci-fi novel set on Mars about a guy who's stranded and needs to yeah. use local. I mean, might be a bit of a retread, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But, <laughs> but if uh, if I'd known about if I was writing The Martian now, I would I'd have to find some way for him to end up with ingenuity because he'd just be. <laughs> OK, I'm, I'm going to check out what's up ahead on my path. And ooh, that's a, that looks like a big ravine i'll go a different way oh, here yeah. you know you can't oh, have two cute yeah. characters though you had pathfinder sorry Sergeant. that's true that's true well pathfinder pathfinder and um um perseverance are very very far apart so i probably if i really wanted ingenuity to be part of it then i would have um just set the martian so like the original Ares three landing site would have been somewhere suitably close to pathfinder can you just tell us from your point of view what hail mary is about well, um, I mean, the initial sizzle is that a guy wakes up aboard a spaceship with no memory of who he is or why he's there. And as his memories start to come back to him, he realizes that he's on a last ditch desperate uh, space mission to save humanity from an extinction level event. So no pressure. <laughs> also, he's the only survivor. There are two dead people in the ship with him. When we first spoke many, many years ago, before the Martian film came out, you said you were writing a book called Jack. Yeah. And it had things like interstellar travel in it. Did aspects of that find their way into this? Yes, they did. Um, so Jack, I worked on it for about a year. I got about 70,000 words in. Uh, for reference, The Martian is 100,000 words. Um, and I was about 70,000 words in when I realized one day, oh dear, this book sucks. It's <laughs> it's no good. The, the, the story isn't interesting. The plot is too convoluted. The characters are boring. And... I'm still in the first act, so this is going to be some 900-page ego tome that no one's going to want to read. So I gave up on it, and I, I backburnered it. And in fact, then put the stove that has that backburner in a back room. You know, <laughs> I just figured it was done. But there were a few diamonds in the rough. There were a few nuggets in there that I thought were really cool. And one of them was this, well, in Jack, it was an alien technology called Black Matter. And it was this fuel that you could use for your spaceship. It would mass convert 
um, itself into basically light and shine that out the back of your ship for propulsion. Um, uh, so th that was in Jack, and I, I thought like, well, I want I want to use that. That's really cool. So I said like that was kind of the nugget that started the story with Hail Mary. I was like, okay, I want this to be a story, but let me think here. What what would I? You know, we couldn't possibly have black matter in the modern day. There's no way we'd be able to invent that. So what if we found it? Okay, well, it's annoying to me that it's an alien technology. If we, if we find this incredible alien technology, that means I have to explain that there is this advanced alien race who for some reason isn't around and stuff like that. And I thought like, well, what does black matter do? It also absorbs all light and turns it into more black matter. That's why it's called black matter, it's black. Um, and uh, I thought like, well, that's interesting because we have a substance that takes energy and makes more of itself. That sounds like a life form, right? Hmm. And so I'm like, oh, instead of an alien technology, it'll just be a naturally evolved life form that does this. And I'm like, okay, why does a naturally evolved life form need to do like interstellar travel? I'm like, okay, it's an interstellar life form. <laughs> okay, well, it needs a lot of energy to do interstellar travel. I'm like, okay, well, let's have it live on the surface of stars and it's like algae and it spores out like mold does to go get other stars and stuff like that. And it's all just evolution. So it is an alien, quote unquote, but it's not like, take me to your leader. It's just like, hey, don't mind me, I'm mold. Hmm. I'm just gonna breed. Hmm. <laughs> and um, then I got to thinking like, oh, okay, that'd be cool. And then, then humans could get a hold of some of this stuff and then we'd start breeding it in farms and then we'd be flying around our solar system. We could colonize Mars and Venus. Ooh, we'd have to make real, we'd have to be real careful to make sure none of that crap got into our sun or we'd start breeding out of control and that'd be a disaster. Yeah. One Mississippi, two Mississippi. <laughs> Holy shit, that's a book. You know, <laughs> like right there, that's that's it. So I'm like, forget all that other crap. We're doing, we're, we're starting with that. You know, this life form starts affecting the total solar output of, of our sun. And now, yeah, that that's the shower epiphany that led to the book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just absorbing all that. I, I, I love the astrophage and um just it, it struck me as like so much sci-fi talks about interstellar travel as something that's kind of higher order mm. yeah and, and this is bacteria yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to me and I, I don't know if this is a factor of the number of characters in your books so far you've gone from like one plus a few to many back to two um but Hail Mary seems like sort of more of a return to the science the shit out of things <laughs> of the Martian, whereas Artemis was more of a, I, I guess you had the human dynamic sort of things in, in, in there um, in a slightly different direction. It's a crime novel. It's Art Artemis is a, a crime novel slash heist kind of thing. Yeah. And this is sort of a return to my hard sci-fi isolated scientist roots. I was, I, acutely aware that it's very similar to the Martian in that respect. So I tried to, I, I tried to not duplicate any plot beats from the Martian at all. Like for instance, Ryland's ship works, <laughs> like nothing breaks down. Everything functions the way it's supposed to. He has other problems, <laughs> but, um, but the ship works, <laughs> you know. What, what was the motivation for um, sort of going a different direction with, with Artemis? I just felt like it. Yeah. I, I I, I didn't want to be locked into like one type of thing. And um, Artemis was this idea I'd had for a while. Um, in general, my stories start with some scientific idea. 
uh, for Hail Mary, it's like, what if we had a, a, a fuel that could mass convert, you know, spacecraft fuel that could do mass conversion for thrust? Great. For the Martian, it was like, how could we put a human's to Mars and you know what are the fail safes on that mission and that led me to thinking of all the things that could go wrong etc and for Artemis it was um, what is humanity's first city that's not on earth going to look like what's it going to be like so all, I, I mean I always start off with just some I mean this is not on purpose it's just this is where my stories tend to come up come from I'm speculating on cool science stuff and then I, I speculate about that stuff all the time. Once in a while, um, I'll get far enough along that I think, oh, okay, this might be a good story. So it wasn't like I, I sat down and said like, all right, I'm gonna write a completely different thing from The Martian. It was just, when I'm gonna write a book, I try to go with whatever I think is the best idea I have at the time. And Artemis was what I thought was coolest. And honestly, I had hoped that, I, I, I had really hoped that it was gonna take off and it was gonna be a setting that I could write book after book in. I wanted it to be my own disc world, right? But um, it just wasn't as popular as a Martian. It did well, people liked it, but they didn't love it. It didn't like, you know, people weren't, people aren't clamoring at the gates for more Artemis. There are, I, I get emails like every day saying, oh, I'll make more Artemis. But I mean, there's not enough of a demand and my, my publisher's like, uh, don't make a sequel to Artemis, make something new. I love the the problem solving kind of facets of, of all of this. There's there's science, sciencing the shit out of stuff in, yeah. in Artemis as well. Yeah. Competence porn is as it's called. <laughs> You've really hit this demographic on the on the head with uh, uh, Hail Mary as well. Thank you. There is a common theme, and this this is a question, Andy, that all depends on when you wrote the book. So there's a common theme. Uh, in your books, The Martian and Project Hail Mary, which focuses on countries putting aside their differences for the common good. Now, the past 18 months, did this underline your belief that we can put aside our differences for the common good? Or were you dismayed to see certain countries go rogue and make uh, a crisis more of a political game, especially when it came to big multinational organizations like the World Health Organization. Okay, so first off, I finished Project Hail Mary in January of 2020. Ah, okay. Uh, so okay. the entire book was written before the pandemic. Well, it was the pandemic had just begun. It was still in Wuhan. It hadn't really spread to the rest of the world. We didn't really know what it was going to happen yet. And it wasn't part of my it wasn't on my radar at all. I was like, okay, that's news, but I'm, you know, working on this book. And so uh, certainly nothing in the book is any reflection on the pandemic. Now, if you're asking just my personal opinions, I have a tremendous amount of faith in humanity. I'm, you can probably tell from my writing that I'm a pretty optimistic guy, especially when it comes to humanity and human nature and our ability to cooperate and work together. And if anything, I think the pandemic has shown that we do that. And sure, there's, there's, it's a sloppy thing. You know, It's when you've got 7 billion people who all now all of a sudden have a shared problem. It's not going to be like, okay, very super organized and everything like that. But I do believe that there's been a lot of cooperation. First off, within, uh, for instance, within the U.S., I mean, we are rather famously not a nationalized healthcare country, but everything related to the pandemic is free. Right. Um, all, all the vaccinations are the, the, the federal government's footing the bill. If you are sick with COVID, you go to a hospital. You, they don't, they don't want money to get in the way of dealing with the pandemic. And that's a big shift for us. So, I mean, it shows you the magnitude of, of changes that people are willing to do to um, 
address this. And internationally, I mean, there's been quite a lot of cooperation, like everything related to the, you know, to treating it is just like, hey, if you can make the dang vaccine, do it. Like, we're not, we're not going to be fighting about patents or anything like that right now. Just make it happen. We might fight about this stuff later, but not now. <laughs> and, and already we're at the point where the U.S. is, um, is um, shipping what we're, I think we're clearing up tens of millions of uh, doses of vaccine to ship overseas now because we've got, we've, we're, we're kind of, we're turning a corner here on vaccinations and so on. So I do think that the world works together when there's a common problem, if it's a direct and immediate uh, problem like COVID is. Um, we're not so great at it when it's a slow burn like environmental damage, but um, you, you can't expect us to all be completely perfectly efficient at all times in every way. But I do think that, that humanity is pretty awesome. And the one example I like to give is if you, you know, if a guy falls on the street and breaks his leg and a total stranger helps him, calls, the, calls an ambulance, helps get him to a hospital, do you see that on the news? No, it doesn't make the news because it's so normal. It is so presumed in human behavior to help each other out like that, that it's not even newsworthy. What's newsworthy is when someone doesn't. And so the fact that you see all this negative stuff on the news, look at the negative stuff you see on the news and remind yourself, the only reason it's on the news is because it's abnormal. It's very abnormal. So when you see people being callous or being horrible to each other, that is abnormal by definition because it's on the news. What you don't see is the billions of little acts of, acts of uh, selflessness by humanity every day. Despite that though, do you think the world should have a strat at all times. <laughs> no, I do not. I mean, I would not want to live in a world that has a strat at all times. Uh, <laughs> strat had unrivaled authority. She's probably the most powerful human being of all time. And like she could tell countries what to do. And it's kind of like in ancient Rome. They had, what was it? They, um, they could uh, declare someone, I forget what it was. It was, I forget the name of the act, but basically the Senate could vote for that person to have like complete dictatorial power for a certain length of time and then and then go back and that's kind of what happened for earth is that everybody said like okay we don't have time for slow ass un committees to try to figure out the best you know color for the flight manual cover i mean we we don't have time for that we need this to go very rapidly so they put all their eggs in the strat basket and had her just run everything and they picked the right person. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, didn't they? I do. Do what? Have you got ideas of who could play her in a film? I, it was Jodie Foster in my head. Mm. Jodie Foster would work. Um, I, 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 yeah, I'd like her to be someone. You know, I'd like her to be not like this young hot actress, right? I'd like her to be someone who's like old enough that, like, it makes sense that she would have worked her way up. And she uh, originally the character Strat. She comes. She's Dutch. And she also is an administrator. Before the before the crisis, was a high-ranking administrator in the European Space Agency. So that's where she came from. So she'd already worked her way up in a career. So I was thinking it'd be cool if it was like Helen Mirren. Oh yeah. You know, I imagined more like Gwendolyn Christie, someone who you know, oh, just would scare you into like, yeah, no, we're doing what she says. <laughs> now, Strat, Strat rules by strength of personality, not by her physical presence, right? So I, I, I'd go, yeah, Helen Mirren, Dame Judi Dench, 
I'm, I'm going to pitch, uh, if Danish is close enough, Sidza Babbitt-Nudson, who played Teresa Cullen in Westworld. I think she'd be great. Uh, I, I only saw season one of Westworld, and I don't remember who's Ah, uh, she, comes, she comes to the fore later. Oh, oh well, okay. there we go. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, Ryan Grace is, uh, to me, a, a bit of an anti-hero, particularly as we learn more about him, which is very different from Mark Watney. I don't know. Anti-hero, I think of anti-hero as someone like Wolverine. Ryland Grace is sort of not a hero. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair, fair. But I, I was wondering, who, who who do you identify with more, Watney or Grace? Grace, I would say. Um, so, But actually, no, I, more, more Watney, you know. So I'm always trying to get better as a writer. And my biggest weakness, in my opinion, is characters, character depth, growth, story arcs, uh, character arcs, and so on. Like in The Martian, there is no character depth or growth at all. Like no one would accuse The Martian of being literature. Um, Mark Watney has the exact same personality at the end of the book as he did at the beginning. He undergoes no change <laughs> at all. And you don't really know anything about Mark by the time you finish the book, other than he's a guy who didn't want to die. Okay. Um, and, you know, he's got sort of a quirky personality, but that's, that's it. Okay, so for Artemis, I said like, all right, I'm going to make a character. And Mark is, of course, based on my own personality. As you can tell, I'm a smartass. And, but he's, he's all the aspects that I have in my own personality that I like and none of my many, many flaws. So he's just the, the idealized version of me, what I wish I could be. Jazz in Artemis was also based on me, but she's let, got all my flaws. I said, like, I'm going to make a deeper, more nuanced and interesting character. Jazz is young. She's like 26. And so I said, like, I'm going to give her all the flaws I had when I was her age. Mm -hmm. Like, I was a screw up. I was ostensibly intelligent, but kept making bad life decisions and that sort of thing. And people were always disappointed in me because they're like, you could be doing so much better, you dipshit. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, it's all right now. What's that? Yeah, I'm doing okay now, but... <laughs> If you met me when I was 26, you'd be like, dude, <laughs> please, like, get better at life. But um, uh, so I gave her my flaws. And um, what I found out is that uh, I, my the, the flawed and more realistic version of me is not a character people have a easy time rooting for. Because she was such the architect of her own problems, people had a tough time, like, rooting for her. And so, you know, I, I said, like, okay, I went too far. I made her too flawed. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, for Ryland, I decided I want to grow more. So for Ryland, I said, I'm not going to base him on me. I'm going to just make a character that is not me, not based on any part of my personality. He's still humor. I mean, there's no way to keep your own personality out of your characters, at least a little bit. But he's still kind of funny. But, you know, I, I, I just like and I don't know how to do that right I'm not very good with characters so I started him off kind of blank without having much personality at all and just started writing and as the story progressed his personality started to develop naturally and then I went back and rewrote the early chapters to match the personality that had developed so for the reader it's a consistent you know personality but for me it was a lot of work to just slowly kind of see how that developed and kind of scary too because I'm the sort of guy who likes to sit down and have everything set up on a spreadsheet and I kind of know what's going on. So to just jump into the void and start writing and hope that the character comes out well. Mm. The evolution of Grace's character as, as we and he learn more about him is, is a really interesting kind of arc. Thank did, you. Did that come early on or did it come later in the process? Um, pretty early on I'd made that. There's a we don't want to spoil, but there's a significant revelation about Grace kind of right near the end of the book. And um, uh, I'd had that in mind for quite a while. And I was seeding it 
earlier, you know, with his reaction to things in, in prior scenes. So I was trying to show that. And we have a question from a listener. Okay. And it's Vili. Just tell him that uh, I'm a big fan. <laughs> well, Vili, I hope you can lose some weight, but good luck. <laughs> and... Oh, you mean the amount of yes. thinness yes. he has is large. I get it. Okay, okay, good, good, good. He's a very tall, thin man. So... <laughs> <That's> <laughs> um... I wondered if he thought about writing what was happening on Earth while while Grace was in space, if he had this, this kind of thinking of describing what was happening to Strat? No, I didn't really want to get into that because that's a story that's very difficult to tell. And actually, I'm still burned by Jacques, which um, was a global epic story. Like, Jacques was something, it was about an alien invasion of Earth, right? And so I had stuff going on all over the world. I had characters all over the world and stuff like that. And I found that extremely difficult to tell as a story because there's no focus character. You know, there's no like one person who's involved in everything. There's all these different characters, all these countries and stuff like that. So the events that are going on on Earth as a result of the sun um, getting dimmer, no, that's not a spoiler. You learn about that fairly quickly, um, would be very difficult to portray. It would be like the main characters we have, would be a bunch of world leaders sitting around on conference calls or something. I don't know. It would, and it would also just not be as interesting as a dude in space, you know, <laughs> whose job it is to put a stop to that threat. So I tried, I mean, I, I, I teased, I, I tried to whet the reader's appetite with like, okay, here's this one tumultuous event going on on earth because of the effect that the solar dimming has on the climate and stuff and then it's just they mention it in passing so i try to paint the picture for the reader there's all this whole crap going on but that's not even what's important right now do you have an idea of i know you're thinking of going so I was back, say, do you have an idea in your head of what did happen even if you don't want to tell the reader specifically no and um that's a thing i often get asked things like like that about this and other books is that like um, I generally don't write what happened, you know, that I generally don't write parts of the story that you haven't actually seen. Like, so I, I don't define it. Yeah, maybe someday I might want to write a sequel or something like that. But um, yeah, uh, I often get people saying, hey, you know, I loved your book, The Martian. What, what happened after Mark got home? And I'm like, okay, so you're asking me to write a sequel for you in this email right now. Well, no, I... <laughs> if now we're in spoiler territory, all right. I've got to ask about the science of Rocky. So when you're going into creating a new alien, plus it's biology, language, evolution, do you come up with the concept of the creature first and then reverse engineer it? Or... Do you think where the story is, like it's going to be around this certain type of star and it will have to have come from this type of planet and then think what that alien would look like as a result? Um, the latter. So basically, um, I had decided early on that, yes, we're in mega spoiler territory. There are actually three biospheres involved in this story. There's ours, Earth. Um, there is um, planet Adrian is what they ultimately name it, which is a planet in orbit around Tau Ceti. And that is basically the home world of astrophage. And um, then there's um, the planet Arid around the star 40 Eridani. And that is the home world of the Eridians, which is an intelligent alien race who has the exact same problem that, uh, that the humans are having. And so they did the exact same thing. The reason everybody, the reason these 
two ships both went to Tau City is because for whatever reason, Tau City is proven to be immune to astrophage. It's the only star in the neighborhood that's not dimming. Okay, so that's the setup. Uh, as for designing Rocky, and Rocky is the nickname that our protagonist gives to the alien that he meets. Um, for the design of Rocky, I decided early on that of these three biospheres, they're way too close together for it to make sense for them to each be a separate genesis. Because I mean, in the grand scheme of things, Forty Eridani, Sol, that's the name of our star, and Tau Ceti are all really close to each other. Tau Ceti is 12 light years from here, Forty Eridani is 16 light years from here, and the Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years across. So it's just like absurdly close together. So I decided these are not separate Genesis events. There was a single Genesis event. I'm not talking about the religious type of Genesis. I mean, life evolved actually on the planet Adrian. On Tau, in orbit around Tau Ceti, and then a um, an ancestor of astrophage, a like a four billion years ago ancestor of astrophage, which was another interstellar traveling life form, monocellular thing, seeded Earth and arid with life, and so we are actually all very distantly related. So this made things a lot easier for me. I mean, I did that on purpose to explain why we're all so close together, but also. I don't have to invent all the chemistry and stuff for new life. I just say like, okay, if you look at the cells in Rocky's body, and if you look at an astrophage itself, you'll see there's mitochondria, ribosomes, DNA, all the cellular machinery that is present in our own cells. And that made it so much easier. I didn't have to invent all that crap, right? And then, um, so that having been said, I'm like, okay, it's the same cellular machinery as we have on earth what would this alien species be like? And so I had selected as the planet um, 40 Eridani B, which is a real exoplanet. 40 Eridani is a real star. It's a solar analog. It's very similar to the sun. And 40 Eridani B is a real exoplanet that we have confirmed with our observations. So I said, well, what do we know about that planet? And it's very close to its star. It orbits, it orbits in 46 days. It's, I think it's even closer to 40 Eridani than Mercury is to the sun, right? It's very close. Um, and it's about eight times the mass of Earth. We know that. And so I decided, all right, there's gonna be life on this planet, so it has to have an atmosphere. Okay, it needs an atmosphere. And also, um, if, if a planet's that close to its star, the, the solar wind from the star tends to basically sandblast the atmosphere off uh, unless you have a good magnetic field. So I decided arid would have a good magnetic field. The way a planet gets a good strong magnetic field is by having a liquid iron, a liquid ferromagnetic core and spinning really fast. Earth spins, you know, once a day. That's why um, we have a, a much stronger magnetic field than for instance, Venus, which very slowly spins. Okay. So I'm like, okay, so they spin fast. Now I'm learning things. Um, their planet, their day is very short. It's like six hours. And their year is very short. It's like 46 days. Okay, great. And I'm like, okay, but they're very, very close to the star. So it's gonna be really, really hot on the planet. And there are a lot of different, uh, planets can be all sorts of different temperatures based on what their atmosphere is and how thick it is and what it's composed of. Like Venus is actually hotter than Mercury despite being further away because of its atmosphere. Um, so I decided it's going to be really hot. It's going to be way more than the boiling point of water and we need water to survive. And I was like, well, hold on. I arbitrarily decided it would be 210 degrees Celsius on the surface of their homeworld. And um, I said, well, if you have like 29 atmospheres of pressure, 210 degrees Celsius water is liquid. So I'm like, there you go. You got liquid water. So all these things came from 
you know, the environment that they live in came from starting off with the real data and then just kind of extrapolating and making stuff up as needed. So now I'm like, okay, we got a life form that lives on the surface of a planet with 29 atmospheres of pressure. And that atmosphere I, I had decided is pure ammonia because it has to be a pretty heavy molecule to not get sandblasted by the sun anyway. Um, that's why Venus still has its atmosphere because it was, it's a bunch of carbon dioxide and that's heavy. So I'm like, all right, uh, ammonia. Well, um, that much ammonia in the atmosphere um, it would have like, uh, I figured their atmosphere is almost like an ocean. It's basically like there's there's um, life kind of in the upper atmosphere that absorbs light and like, and grows that way. And then there's life below that that eats that. And, and then there's life below that that eats that life and so on. At the surface, there'd be no sunlight reaching the surface, just like there's no sunlight reaching the, the, the bottom of our ocean. And so I'm like, oh, okay, then iridians don't have eyes. They don't have vision. There's no such thing as vision, but they do need some sort of three-dimensional spatial knowledge. So sound, they have like echolocation, like they can hear with sound really well. And then everything else kind of came from that. It's really hot. And I had a lot of fun putting them together. And, and the big epiphany I had on that was, okay, I decided that um, an Iridian's body is almost like if a beehive had arms and legs and could move. Like there's actually, only if an iridian weighs like 300 plus kilograms but there's only a there's like less than five kilograms of actually living biological material in it so just as you have hair and the lenses of your eyes and your fingernails well not you andrew but the other guys have hair <laughs> and <laughs> and um just as you have all those things, and that's dead tissue that your body created, and it's now part of your body, but it's not living anymore, an Iridian's body is almost entirely that tissue. Even their blood vessels, everything like that, are all made out of this dead tissue, and they have little worker cells that swim through their bloodstream to do things to maintain the body. And I thought that's a really cool concept, so I got to do that. I could I could listen to that forever. Rocky's going to go far, I think. I can't wait to see what the movie treatment does to him. I love him. Oh, my God the response I've gotten from, I, I mean, he was supposed to be a likable character, right? I mean, I did that on purpose. I wanted him to be like, oh, you like him. He's cool. And this is really a story of friendship. Yeah. This yeah. book. Yeah. Friendship is magic, right? But um, I had no idea the response to Rocky. People are like saying, I would die for Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad it's having that effect. Is it a funny thing to write a book that, and then people only get it over a year later? Yeah, it's it's annoying. Um, uh, there's always a long uh, lead in. I mean, it's usually on the order of five months or eight months or something like that from the point that you lock down the final draft until the point that it's on shelves. And it's just, it takes that long for printing to get done and distribution and they like to do an ad campaign and they choose the release date. It's kind of similar like um, how movie studios choose their release date. They go like, okay, what other books are we going to be up against? We don't want to, you know, we don't want to release the same week as a new James Patterson novel or something like that. Right. Um, and so for project Hail Mary with the pandemic shut down like the whole American printing industry for quite a long time. Um, so they said, well, we're not gonna be able to print anytime soon. And then they said, everybody's going to be having their books come out kind of toward the beginning of 2021. And we don't want to be in competition with all these huge name authors. And so in the U.S., the main, of course, of course, Random House is mostly focused on U.S. sales, right? Um, uh, the main uh, book buying 
period, the when books sell the best in the US is the period between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So um, late November until late December. And they said like, everybody's gonna have their books coming out there. But in the US, the second most, um, uh, the, the second biggest time for books to sell is actually right now, the period leading up to Mother's Day. People like to buy their mom's books. And I think in the UK, don't you guys have a different Mother's Day or is that Canada that is? Yeah, we no, do. we do as well. Our Mother's Day is, I think, this Sunday. It, it, it always shocks me when the internet talks about Mother's Day and it's yeah, not. Yeah, but anyway, so in the lead up to our Mother's Day, People like to buy books for their moms, I guess. I, and uh, so there's a lot of book sales. So they said, we're going to target that. And so that's why it ended up on Star Wars Day, May the 4th. Yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah. I, I, I think I know the answer to this one, but I'm going to chuck it in and see how it sticks anyway. I, there's, I, I see some parallels um, with, with Rocky and, and the situation he's in um, with the aliens from Ted Chang's story of your life. And you've told us you've sort of created from first principles, but I wondered if sort of how you see that analogy. Um, so uh, a, a startling and embarrassing confession. I have not seen Arrival. Oh, what? Stop this conversation now. Do it. Yeah, okay, I will. I'll get on it. But I understand there's a lot of like first contact communication stuff in there, and there's a lot of that in my book. So I assume there's overlap there. No, that's cool. And, and, and exactly the same as I say to people when they talk about The Martian, uh, movie being great. I'll tell them to read the book as well because there's so much more in there. Okay. Have you been keeping up on the recent crisis in space films like Ad Astro, Midnight Sky and Stowaway? And with that in mind, when you were writing Project Hail Mary, did you avoid other Save the Sun <laughs> movies like Sunshine to avoid falling into any similar territory? Well, I always want to avoid, you know, duplicating any stories that have already been told. Um, Ad Astra... I think Ad Astra came out. When did Ad Astra come out? About three, three years ago now, two years ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, Ad Astra is just Heart of Darkness, right? Yeah. Uh, AKA Apocalypse Now. That's Apocalypse Now is just the film version of Heart of Darkness, and it's all. And Ad Astra is, I mean, and and I mean, they're open about it. They're like, this is a science fiction retelling of Heart of Darkness, <laughs> and so there's really no similarity on on that one um uh stowaway is brand new so i mean i'd already written it <laughs> i can't can't help what comes after my stuff but you know i mean in the end yeah there's always there 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 are really no news stories right okay earth has an existential threat a desperate space mission has to save it okay that's like a thousand different stories right there like you know from armageddon to you know solar crisis to and so on i i, I don't want to tread over this again but i'm going to <laughs> artemis um the characters in that the story in that i why isn't that a netflix film why isn't that coming out on yeah i think it'd make a good uh, series too but yeah. um the film rights have been sold they they belong to 20th century fox so disney well everything's disney <laughs> i probably belong to disney <laughs> yeah. um <clears throat> But um, the uh, yeah, Phil Lord and Chris Miller are set to direct. We have Geneva Robertson Dvorat, a very talented screenwriter, working on the screenplay. She's already sent us a few revs. We're nowhere near casting or anything like that. Um, but actually, what's funny is those same guys are working on the film for Project Hail Mary, uh -huh. Phil Lord and Chris Miller, and we have Ryan Gosling attached to play the lead. And so uh, that one's going real nice. That one, that one's plugging along. And MGM, who bought the film rights to it, is really excited by it. So that one's looking really, 
I'm feeling pretty optimistic about that one, but we'll see. With Hollywood, you never know. I mean, Lord and Miller have like thousands of projects on their plate. They just put out the Mitchells versus the Machines this weekend. They always, they've got. Um, they've always got a lot going on. <laughs> have Have you um spoke? Is Drew Goddard adapting yes. Project Hail Mary yes. again? Have you spoken to him? Have you spoken to Ryan Gosling yeah. about playing Grace? How's that all oh, going? It's going great. I mean, Ryan Gosling um contacted us. So I mean. That was awesome. Uh, Drew Goddard, I was the one who like really pushed for Drew. I mean, everybody loves Drew. One of the problems was that he he's working on another show right now. And he told us, he's like, he said like, guys, I just don't have the time to work on this. I'm sorry. And so I was like, okay, well, here's a copy of the book. I hope you enjoyed Cause I like Drew. He's a friend of mine. And then he read the book and said like, well, I think I would like to work on this. And so that was very flattering to me. And um, then he said, but I, you know, guys, I, I've got like, I wouldn't be able to consider starting for at least like six to eight months while I'm working on this other stuff. And I, so I pushed, I pushed for every, everybody in the production. I'm like, let's wait for Drew. Let's, let's just wait. We're not going to be shooting anything during the pandemic anyway. So let's just hold on and, and wait for him. So we did. And I think it's going to be worth it. I mean, I haven't seen a, a rev yet, and I don't think I'm going to anytime soon. Uh, but um, but Drew is just such a fantastic screenwriter. I mean, he did such a good job on The Martian. He gets me. He gets what I'm going after, and so I just feel much more comfortable with the with the screenplay in his hands than with anyone else. Yeah, fantastic. Well, let's hope all the stars align with that one and everyone's uh, schedules line up. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Let's hope. I mean, Ryan Gosling's in, so... Any concerns that he's too handsome to play Ryland Grace? Um, well, not... I mean, Matt Damon's pretty handsome, too, and I didn't imagine Mark Watney's being so <laughs> Actually, thinking about it, he's played a school teacher in Half Nelson and an astronaut in First Man, so, I mean, the Just experience is already there. Well, you know, what's funny is, like, uh, you know, talking about hotness of performers, that's just part of the territory in Hollywood turns out big name actors and actresses are pretty good looking. <laughs> and, um, so like when I wrote the Martian, I imagined commander Lewis as being older and like not hot. You know, I kind of actually imagined her looking kind of like Jane Lynch, just a dignified, you know, no nonsense kind of like person. And then we get the incredibly beautiful Jessica Chastain <laughs> to play her and she nailed the yeah, role. Yeah. So everything's fine, yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, it's not what I imagined. Yeah. Um, there is a part in the book, though, where uh, right shortly after Grace wakes up, he's confused about how ripped he is. He's like this, he's really muscular and like fit. And he's like, what? Uh, you know, and he later finds out that the bed that had been taking care of him when he was in a coma would make, was exercising him with, a, you know, electrical stimulus to make his muscles exercise and stay fit so he woke up and he's like ripped so that works well and we've got ryan gosling doing that yeah. it could even be a scene where he's like i'm ripped hey look <laughs> he could have porked up during lockdown if i know ryan gosling i he bet could. he was there he with have. the cream cakes oh, and uh what was it uh there was a, the one role he was prepping for it was uh the lovely bones for peter jackson he put on 50 yeah. pounds or something yeah yeah he said he was drinking like uh he would just melt haagen and just drink it like as a shake what and then he left the project he left the project like a week into shooting and mark Wahlberg yeah, replaced well, him. They, yeah and uh i think there's some bad feelings there but yeah, yeah. They, they make beer you don't need to to do this with with i i, I just 
I don't know. <laughs> what? Well, so when? Maybe that's just what he enjoyed yeah, the most. Maybe when? Uh, so the the language, Rocky's language, I think it's it's a wonderful thing. Do you have a, an idea of who's working on the sound in the film? How that's going to work? Well, um, we have some ideas now with film stuff. So this time around, unlike The Martian, in The Martian, they just, my only job was to cash the check. This time around, I'm actually a producer, so I, I get some say over hey, things. Cool. Yeah, that's kind of neat. Um, power, <laughs> unlimited power. And what Strapped. I do with this power is I sit in the background and let the real producers do their jobs because I don't, I don't <laughs> um, But um, on movie things, though, things are always so secret, you're not allowed to talk about anything. We have some ideas on how to do that. Okay. Um, and so we have some approaches they're going to try. Uh, unrelated to that, I think the audiobook of uh, Project Hail Mary, which is narrated by Ray Porter, um, they did a really cool thing. They have the music playing, you know, so Rocky's language is like whale song, or it's like a lot of notes and chords. And um, so they play that, those sounds, that music, and they have the narrator talking to represent that this is what Rocky's actually saying. And, but you can also hear the music. That's cool. So the narrator's speech is what Rocky is meaning, but the notes are what is actually happening. And it, it really works. It works cool. very That's good. well. I'm, so I'm sitting at a piano. I can't play it, but my wife can. And when I read the bit where you, des- you describe what Rocky's saying, which is Adrian, <laughs> right? then this is what she played me based on what you wrote. Can I play this to you? See how, if it's anything like you uh, felt it was going to be. Sure. I mean, yeah, something like that, a little faster. I was half expecting you to play the Bill Conti Rocky theme or something. Yeah. It's called Gotta Fly Now. That's the name of that, of the Rocky theme in the movies rocky it's funny i read one of the reviews of uh, project hail mary said like oh and since you know age you know he chose the name rocky you know the protagonist chooses the name rocky because you know rocky is actually a hermaphrodite and so when it comes time to choose the name to call rocky's mate he chooses adrian because it's another um you know kind of non-gender specific name i'm like no i didn't he chose it because adrian is the name of rocky's wife in the movie rocky. <laughs> all you needed to do is you know work in an apollo reference and you would have been three for three yes. but lazy andy next time i'm sorry uh, i'll work in a clipper playing lessons um let's see yeah so apollo creed Rocky two, Apollo Creed, Rocky three, Clubber Lang, Rocky four, Ivan Drago. And I don't remember the name of the punk in Rocky five. That was a terrible movie. Tommy Gunn. Tommy Gunn. Okay. Well done. Yeah. I'm a big Rocky fan. Says my wife. I guess so. Well, I hope you can lose some weight. (laughs) Speaking of my wife, she is halfway through your book and loving it. She's just got up to the bit where uh, Ryland sees the alien spaceship. Oh yeah. But she noticed Only swearing in the book. <laughs> yeah, she noticed in your author bio that you're into making cocktails these days. So she oh, yeah. asked me to ask you: number one, have you got the Star Trek cocktails book? I and, don't. And two, do you have a Project Hail Mary inspired cocktail? I don't. Um, not all of my hobbies have to come together into a single entity. <laughs> um, but my cocktail of choice is a rum old fashioned. Oh. So. 
an old-fashioned, but instead of whiskey, make it with a dark rum. Not bad. Good Melted choice. Melted ice cream. So when, <laughs> <laughs> when, what was it? A year ago, you released, you finished this book. That means it was more than a year ago, isn't it? Yeah, it was about 14 months. There's a big question here, isn't there, which is what have you been doing for the last 14 months and when can we read it? Nothing. I mean, <laughs> so like I'm working on my next book now. Uh, I don't talk about I'm not ready to talk about it yet because what I learned from Jack is that I might work on a book for quite a while and discover it sucks. So rather than <laughs> with Jack, I had to explain to everyone, no, Jack went away. Don't ask further questions. Right. But um, so I'm just not talking about future projects until I'm sure that's what I'm going to write. Um, as for, hey, what have you been doing in these past 14 months? Well, I thought the pandemic would, you know, for all its flaws, I thought it would at least be good for my writing, you know, stuck at home, can't go hang out with my friends, can't do anything. Uh, so I may as well write. And I didn't get a dang thing done. I mean, I just, I just sucked. I, I didn't accomplish anything. And I found out from other writers that I know, they're in the same boat. It, it's very difficult to write during the pandemic and I'm trying to figure out why. And talking to my writer friends, I think what we've discovered is that a lot of your inspiration and ideas come from interactions with other people and going out and doing things. So even though the actual writing happens in your little cave, it, the ideas and the motivation comes from events outside your house. And if you're not having those events outside your house, you're not getting any ideas. Mm -hmm. So fair enough. You've got two vaccines now, though, haven't you? I do. I've I'm double vaxxed. Are you going out now? I'm as protected as I can get. Uh, I I am not quite going out yet. Um, my wife is uh, very uh, cautious about the pandemic, so she doesn't really want us. We we do a little bit of stuff, but we're we're more limited by my wife's. Um, desires than we are by the laws okay, right okay fair enough that seems sensible we're starting to open up again here in california use the old uh, ryan gosling wants to go out for dinner and see how uh... well uh yeah i guess is that would probably work but um i, I think he's also taken it pretty safe as well also i live quite a ways away from him i mean i it, you know all the stars and they, they'll they'll live mostly in southern california whereas i live in northern california which may seem like a minor distinction, but California is bigger than Britain. Pretty big, yeah. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, if it's, a, it's like the difference between London and Glasgow. It's far be it for me to tell you what to do, Andy, but um, if you do have time on your hands, please watch Arrival. Oh, I will, I will, I will. I definitely will. And it's been it's been on my list for a long time, but lately I've been crazy busy with the, the publicity and marketing run-up for Project Hail Mary and all the interviews and these lame loser British podcasts and uh, I know no. oh, they're the worst <laughs> the absolute worst neckbeards I mean it's just a shame you couldn't be here in the UK we would have got the planetarium open again oh I would have loved to I love the UK so you know that's the one thing I really love is that you know I get one free trip to the UK per book right because Del Rey pays for me to come over and you know my wife and I go there and we have a good time but pandemic ruined everything and so yeah my, my my book tour this year has been entirely virtual i have not gotten off my ass for a single event i've been right here in this well room. next one next, next one. one we'll next bring one. you over we'll get you in the planetarium or whatever's relevant well we'll probably once things calm down pandemic wise and travels back open and things are back open again we'll probably just go out there just 
as a vacation because we miss it, you know. Well, hopefully we'll still be a UK. Things are getting pretty spicy around here these days. Well, you'll still be a UK. Yeah, yeah. You might not have Scotland, one, but the other three. We might not have Northern <laughs> Ireland at the rate things are going. So Northern yeah. Ireland. So you'll be you'll still be united. There'll be England and Wales. <laughs> uh, Good. That's yeah. a united kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> going to war with France over fish or something. Or something. I'm an American, so all I know about Europe is like you have plagues, right? And so do you vote for that guy who like carries the wagon around to carry the plague victims away or is that part of the nationalized healthcare system or is that extra <laughs> yeah, dead. well and here in the western part of the united states it's all gunfights and sheriffs and stuff of course yeah. civilized that's, instead that's of a, trial by combat much more civilized there's there's a there's a railway coming through soon and and the the cattle barons are fighting over land it's that's all we do here so and i assume each of you lives in a castle right? <laughs> or a shed yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. And I hope to get back to the UK someday and see all you guys in person. Come That'd and see be great. It's been an absolute pleasure reading and chatting. All right. Have a good one, Andy. All right, guys. Pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ty. Thanks, Steve. And of course, thanks, Andy, for joining me for this episode of The Cosmic Shed. We'll be back very soon with an episode on Stowaway. We've also got an episode on Ammonite with Kate Winslet. And we have an episode on the vast of night coming soon too and thank you very much for listening the cosmic shed science fact science fiction and everything in between this podcast is brought to you by the stimulus network